your Bibles to John chapter 20. We're studying through the Gospel of John. We would have finished up this Wednesday, except I'm not going to be here this Wednesday. Uh, Michael Schrader is going to be sharing. He goes to our church. He's a fireman, just a great Bible teacher, great communicator. So I encourage you to come out Wednesday night. But we have about one more week to finish the Gospel of John, and so we'll do it the Wednesday uh, in two weeks when I get back. We're working our way through the gospel. We took a detour as we're going through the Bible. After 2 Kings, we decided to take the gospel of John, and then we'll be back in Chronicles in a few weeks and, and uh, continuing our journey through the Bible. John chapter 20, Jesus has been killed. And for the disciples, that was uh, the most devastating thing that could have happened to them. They left everything, and they had followed Jesus When he said, follow me, they said, okay. Gave up everything, spent their time with him for three years, with Jesus every day, learning about service and seeing God working in powerful ways. All along, Jesus had been kind of warning them about his death, but they didn't want to hear it, and so they just couldn't get it, didn't understand it. And so now he's dead, he's in the grave, and things couldn't look darker couldn't look bleaker to his disciples. So they're huddling up in a little room not knowing what to do. Well, some of them after three days had gone and checked out the grave site and sure enough, the grave was empty. They didn't really understand what that was all about. Then that same first day as Mary Magdalene had been in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and so, or not in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the garden where Jesus was buried in, by his tomb there. She ran into a guy she thought was the gardener. It turned out, as he talked to her, she realized it was Jesus. So she ran back and told the disciples, and everyone kind of had mixed emotions, I think. I mean, after all, a witness to something like that, I saw Jesus, this is a woman. Women couldn't testify in court in those days because they were thought to be overly emotional, hysterical, and you couldn't trust what they say. Imagine that. But, <laughs> but that was in those days, those bad old days. But not only that, consider the source. Mary Magdalene, she had, she had been a woman who was possessed with a bunch of demons. Jesus delivered her, and now perhaps they're back. You can't take her word for it. But now here in chapter 20, we see Jesus shows up when the disciples are in the room together. And it says in verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Shalom. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Looking at the other gospels, we see that they didn't believe it was him. They thought it was a ghost. They were freaked out. So he said, calm down. Peace be with you. Look, it's really me. Showed them his hands and sighed. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. Calm down. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. I have a ministry for you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
Now, without going into great detail, it doesn't mean they had the power to forgive sins. What he was saying was, I've given you the ministry that the Father gave me, and that is you get to declare to people that if they've confessed their sins, they're forgiven by God. You can declare his forgiveness. At the same time, on good authority, you can let people know, hey, if you don't allow your sins to be dealt with, then you're condemned. And so he gives them this ministry Thomas wasn't there. As we come to verse 24, it says, Thomas called the twin. One of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, oh man, you should have been here. It was great. Jesus was here. We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, yeah, right. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, after eight days, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Boy, if there is one time that I think I would have loved to have been there, it would have been in that upper room when Jesus shows up. And they're amazed, they're surprised, they're frightened. Then to see him say, go ahead, stick your hand right in here, do it. To Thomas, what an experience that would be. What a life-changing event to be able to witness that. To be able to see Jesus really is the thing that we all need. If we can see him, everything changes. There he is. He's alive. We understand. We've experienced. Now, as I look at this story, there are a few features of it that strike me as being worth thinking further about. One of the first things, it's interesting the message that Jesus brought to them. As he comes to the room, he's died, he's risen from the dead, and when he comes in, they're in turmoil, they're freaking out, they don't know what to do, they're without hope, and Jesus says to them, peace. He stood there in their midst, the word there for midst means that he was interrelating with them, moving around among them. He was one of them, bumping into them, touching them. There he was, and his message was a message of peace. It's often, as we've been studying through the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus brings that up many times. And over in chapter 14, where he said, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Later on in chapter 16, as he talks about the Holy Spirit, then he says, you know what? I came that you would have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He introduced peace to them. He brought it to them. He connected it intimately with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And now here in the upper room, as he breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit, he's telling them, now be at peace. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. But see, peace comes from knowing that he is with you. Wherever he is, he brings his own peace. Remember when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus in the storm on the Sea of Galilee? Waves were coming up over the side of the boat. They thought they were going to die. And here Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. Now let's us realize when you can have that kind of peace in the middle of a storm, it says something about you. But to the disciples, it said, you don't care because you're not as upset as we are. And so often we, we feel offended when people don't worry about what we're worried about. 
Often, if you have God's peace, you'll be accused of not caring. And that was kind of the idea there in that boat. But as Jesus, as they woke him up, he looked around at the storm and said, Peace, be still. And it calmed down completely. Then they felt really stupid. Then he talked to them about their faith a little bit, and then they felt even worse. But Jesus, when he enters the situation, in fact, you can tell if Jesus is in the middle of a situation or not based on whether or not there's peace. If you are in a situation in your life where there's a lack of peace, maybe you're feeling this uneasiness and everybody's hassling you and even people that you normally depend on, you're not quite so sure what they're thinking of you. You lay in bed and your heart's pounding like something's going on. You try to close your eyes, your mind is just racing, things are happening, you're going, oh, I want peace, I need peace. Put Jesus in the middle of your problems. Put him in the midst of your life. You'll see, being close to him, it leaves you at peace. It's kind of like walking around with someone who's a lot bigger than you are. You feel more secure when you're with someone who has the power to deal with the situation. I remember when we were kids, we had a, there was a guy that lived near us named Ron Prince. He was like 6'8", 300 pounds, huge guy. Nobody would mess with him. And when I would be hanging out with him, I had took on a real confidence. I was a little guy, you know, 13 years old, and, and I'd walk up and mouth off to people. And I'd just turn and look at Ron, and he'd come sidling up. It's just different. You're with someone like that. But the truth is, the confidence that should come to us because of Jesus being in our midst is much more profound than that. Remember in the 23rd Psalm when David talking about the Lord as his shepherd, he said, yea, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. If we understand that he's with us, there's a peace that results. Because, yeah, in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, he said, I have overcome the world. If we know that he's with us, it ought to bring a peace, even a peace that passes understanding. It may not make sense to be peaceful, but it does when you realize Jesus is in the midst. And so we see this, the exhortation. The first thing Jesus says to the disciples after he rose from the dead is peace. And the first thing that should be a reaction in our lives when we have a lack of peace is to go, Jesus, we need you to be here. I need to put you in the middle of this situation. The next thing that really sticks out about this story, and the part of the story that's probably the most famous as a Bible story, is Thomas. Doubting Thomas, we call him. He's got this label on him. People joke about Thomas being from Missouri because, oh, he just wouldn't believe anything. He had to see all the evidence. He demanded, let me touch your wounds. And I, and I think we're really kind of unfair to Thomas. For one thing, it's only this one little event. And you don't want to brand somebody's life based on one occasion. This wasn't consistent. Thomas wasn't constantly going, oh, I doubt it, I doubt it. Not at all. In fact, back in John 11, as we were going through that passage, we saw that when Jesus wanted to go down to Bethany, which is near Jerusalem, when Lazarus was sick and eventually died, the disciples were going, we can't go down there. They're trying to kill you. There's a warrant out for you in Jerusalem. And as Jesus made it clear he was going, death threat or no death threat, Thomas was the one who spoke up and said, come on, let's go with him. Let's go die with him, he said. Hey, I know it's going to kill us, but that's okay. Count me in. That's not the kind of guy that we have this image of Thomas. I think of Thomas in this event similarly to the way I think of Bill Buckner, who used to play for the Dodgers. 
Remember, Buckner was a great player in those days when Buckner and Garvey and Say and Davey Lopes and all, they were great Dodger teams. Now, I know most of you are so young, you're just staring into space as I say those names. But Buckner was a great player. Batted over 300 for the Dodgers every year. Was, was phenomenal. Ended up later getting traded. He's a little older. Finally ends up on the Boston Red Sox. He played great for them, but he was getting older. Wasn't quite as sharp. He was still batting in the 290s. But there in the World Series, the Boston Red Sox thought they had a curse from back in Babe Ruth's days that they could never win the World Series. And now here they are. They're about to win the World Series. They're one out away in the eighth inning from just locking this thing up. They've got a lead. Buckner's playing first base for them, and a ball gets hit to him. Easy ground ball. It's the third out. All he has to do is field that ball, step on first. The ball went right through his legs. And today, they lost the game. Boston was, you know, until this year, finally, the curse was broken. But at that point, Buckner was an intricate part of it. And if you're ever watching a TV game show and they start to ask a question about Bill Buckner, you know what it is. As far as the nation, as far as the city of Boston is concerned, Bill Buckner is the guy that let that ball roll through his legs. No matter what else he did, that one failure brands him forever as that guy. And there are some times when many of us feel that way as well. One point of failure, and it doesn't matter what else you do, you're seen as the person who blew it. You're seen as the one who bobbled that event or that situation. I don't think that's fair about Thomas to do that. But also, as we look at Thomas and Jesus talking to him, you don't get the idea that Jesus was going, Thomas, there you go again. How dare you question me? I think our attitude would be, what do you mean unless you touch me? Here, I'll touch you. I'll put some wounds in you. Thomas, and start pounding on him, wrestle him to the ground, and, you know, how dare you question me? Oh, I think often we grow up, we let our kids get the idea that you aren't allowed to question your parents. It's because I'm your parent, that's why. Because I say so, that's why. How dare you question me? And so we have a generation that grows up feeling like asking questions are bad. Oh, I think school compounds that problem greatly. Because if you're a school teacher and you're not, you don't really know your stuff, so you're scared to death that people are going to ask questions. You hate those kids that ask the questions. Because all you did was study one chapter ahead of the students. And, you know, you know, yeah, I can teach. The test questions, they're in the back of the book in the teacher's edition. I have answer keys. But there's some kid that asks a question, and you're just going, oh, no, I don't want to hear it. And so we send a message in school asking questions. It's really not necessary. We really don't appreciate it, especially if it's a hard question. Now, good teachers love questions. They die for them. They're like, I can't wait for a student to ask something. Why? Because a good teacher has studied and mastered the material such that they're prepared to deal with questions. And when somebody's asking a question, it means they're thinking. It means they're paying attention. It means they notice. That's the difference, big difference between a good teacher and a bad teacher. How do you handle your questions? But we get this mentality in our minds and we start to feel like having doubts or questions that's a bad thing. I completely understand why. You know, I'm down there on the radio with Pastor Chuck answering questions a lot. I mean, last week, I think it was, I was there every day, and you, or two weeks ago. And every time, I'm on my way to do the program, and through my mind start flashing all these questions that I hope people don't ask, because I don't have a good answer. 
Well, once in a while, somebody will ask a question. I go, boy, that's a great question. I don't know. I'll try to get back to you on it. But I think, what happened if I go on the air and, hey, it's Pastor's Perspective, happy day, and here to answer all your questions, our first caller, and they ask a question that I have no clue as to what the answer is. So I kind of bluff through it any way I can and gloss it over, and here's a second question, another question I can't answer. I'm like, this is going to be terrible. A whole, what if I had a whole day of, uh, I don't know, call back when somebody else is here, or maybe call Hank Hanegraaff or something, he might know, I don't. And looking at the screen and all these questions, and every once in a while there's a question that pops up and I'm just going, oh no. But you know what I do? If I see a question that I think that about, I go take, I punch that question up. Because I like it. If somebody stumps me, great. Now I don't want to play stump the pastor and have every day just, let's see if there's something that, you know. But at the same time, it means people are thinking. And I believe that we program our society to not think and to not question because it causes the people in authority to be more secure and to not be embarrassed. That's why in our society, we've decided that there's a certain standard of behavior that just everyone should conform to. And I'd propose to you in child rearing, our greatest value often is how can we get our children to conform to exactly what they want them to be and what we want them to do. And if a kid's out of line, they don't learn the way we like for them to learn, or they don't act in in a way that we want them to act, well, let's beat them into shape. Let's medicate them into shape. Let's do something so that it's easier for us. But I would propose to you that the strong-willed child, or the overly active child, or the defiant child, that's not the kids that you have to worry about really isn't. I'll tell you the most dangerous thing to see in your children is an overly compliant child. The one who just does whatever you say and you think, oh, I wish my kids were like those kids. No, you don't. Because see, someone who's overly compliant, that's what Hitler's youth were built around. Somebody who just does what they're told automatically, easily, always making us look good. Well, the day is going to come when they're outside your home. And if you haven't taught them to ask questions, and if you haven't caused them to feel like that's a good thing that you doubt sometimes, and let me take the time to explain this to you, then they're just going to roll over and do whatever their college professors tell them, whatever their friends tell them. Oh, the worst that you don't want someone who doesn't question. The other disciples, they're like, oh, he seems to be here, great. You got Thomas who's going... I don't know. I want to know this is real. If I'm going to spend the rest of my life following after someone who's dead, I want to know that he's alive. I want to know that he rose from the dead. Give me the evidence. And that's why you know many of you are walking with the Lord. You remember what kind of a kid you were growing up. Probably voted least likely to be a compliant Christian like you are now. If you went back in the history of almost every pastor you know, We were the bad kids. It's one reason why I have patience with kids who mess up is because I did. I understand how that works. But somebody who's messing up, at least they're questioning. At least they're wondering. At least they're thinking. They want to test it and see, is this real? And so, you know, Thomas stands out as an example of somebody who just didn't go along with the flow, but he, in his 
ADDness and his oppositional defiance disorder and his hyperactivity, however you want to brand it, he was going, uh, wait a minute. I'm not buying this just because you guys say it. You know, and then there Jesus is, and Jesus is going, no, it's okay. Go ahead and touch me. Get close. You'll find out. He never minds. God never minds when we question him. Read the Psalms. They're full of questions. They're full of struggles. Now, there is a person who just questions everything all the time. At some point, that just becomes a very arrogant way of, of uh, you know, rocking the boat. Usually happens when someone's been told to stop asking questions, so then they just do it deliberately. But Thomas stands there for us as a person who says, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to say, I want to check this out and see if this is real. I've had people come up to me, and you don't need to do it today. But I I remember there was one gal who became a secretary at our school years ago, and she had come out of a church where the pastor had been really corrupt, and there were all sorts of bad things happening, allegations of molestation and everything, and she got to where she just didn't trust anyone. And she came, her name was Cindy, and she came to the school and was hired, and she came into my office, and she goes, you know, I don't really know you, but she said, I'm going to be watching you. And I, and I go, hmm. <laughs> and she said, everything you say sounds good, but I want to see if you're really living it. So I just want you to know. And at first I was kind of like, well, who do you think I am? Do you think Calvary Chapel hires people? Well, never mind about that. But it, it's like, instead I'm going, you know, that's kind of good. I appreciate that somebody will go, I want to see if this is real. I want to see if you'll live what you're saying. I don't want to just blind myself and go, okay, I'll play along, I'll go along with the motions. And Thomas stands as a witness to us that it's okay to do that. That, we don't, that it's not the most spiritual thing to just oh, swallow whatever it is that somebody gives you, but instead to go, we'll see. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to check this out. God never is afraid of that. He loves it because he will prove himself. It's what he does. And so Thomas is a great example to us of that. Another thing that I see in this story that strikes me as a little strange, Jesus, it's time for him to prove who he is. Well, if I was him, I think I'd do a miracle. He goes, you guys think I'm not really risen from the dead? You're afraid I'm not really who you thought I was? I'm not God? Watch this. Poof. A giant screen TV pops up in the upper room. And then, poof, it's the 2005 Super Bowl. And look who's winning. And look what's happening. We won't get into that. And you go, man, you must be God. You must be alive. This is real. But what does Jesus do? He says, here's my identification. It's my wounds. It's my injuries. That's what I'm showing to you. Now, if you ever look at a, at a rap sheet on a criminal, or if you, if you ever go on the Megan's Law CD and can look up all of the registered offenders in your community and whatever, one of the things, they always say height and weight, but then there's always scars and identifying marks. Because scars and injuries and things like that, that's what makes us different from everyone else. Everyone has a nose, But not everyone has a nose that's been broken that wanders all over your face. You have a nose like that, it's great. Now, nobody wants to be like that. No one goes into the plastic surgeon and says, I would like a nose like Carl Malden's, just this big old (laughs) head of cauliflower on my face. That would be... 
But the truth is, when I say Carl Malden, you can see him because of that nose, unless you're too young to remember him, but most of us are up there. So identification by wounds, yeah. Why? Well, I would propose to you that wounds become some of the most valuable things in making us who we are and putting that stamp of authenticity on our life. See, going through a tough time, being hurt, experiencing pain, that's what ultimately makes us who we are. And when we're in the middle of it, we hate it. We just go, no, that's not right. But wounds heal. That's how they become scars. You know, maybe you, at the beginning of the year, you thought it's time to get in shape. And so, like most Americans, every year in January, you join the health club or you dig out your membership papers and remind yourself of, you know, check on MapQuest and find out where the gym is that you've been paying membership to. And you go down there and you're, you're surprised. It's easier than you thought. Man, I'm feeling good. I already feel lighter just for going to the gym. Then you walk up to the equipment and you start to lift weights. You're kind of looking out of the corner of your eye in the mirror going, yep, I suck my stomach in and flex my muscles. I'm looking pretty good. This is great. And you feel like, oh, you do such a huge workout because it's fun. Haven't done, I don't know why I ever quit doing this in the first place. This is great. And you're just feeling pumped up and excited. You go out and it's like, well, I did something good for myself. And so, you know, I think I can actually justify a big lunch. Because I'm sure I worked off those calories and get a gallon of ice cream and start pumping it down. And you're like, man, this is great. And you're feeling okay till the next morning. And you try to get out of bed and your body's just stuck in bed. Oh, what happened? I can't, I can't lift my arm. What's going on? Well, you went to the gym and you injured yourself. But that's how muscles develop. That's how strength becomes increased. Your muscles are torn. You injure them. And they grow back actually stronger than they were before. Life is that way in every area. The things that hurt us also make us stronger. We battle through those injuries, through those weaknesses, and we find out that there's healing even in wounds. And everything that's ever happened to you that has injured you, you'll discover later, wow, these are the defining moments of life. I think of my friend John Corson, who I've known for 30 years, and, and John, at a fairly young age, when he had little kids, his wife died in a tragic car accident, and I just thought he wasn't going to make it through. I was very, very concerned for him, and so then a few years later, when his daughter died in a similar accident, right in a similar place of the road up in Oregon, I thought this would destroy him. I honestly, as I was praying for John, and when I first saw him, I I was like, he seems okay. And I watched him, and I corresponded with him, and I realized, this is amazing. That which you would think would devastate someone made John much stronger. It's given him the kind of ministry now, the power in that communicating that comes from somebody who you know is the real thing. He's been authenticated. He's been identified by his wounds, and he'll never be the same. Nobody has to wonder whether he really believes this stuff because he went through what he went through and came out stronger on the other side. That's what reality is. It's being tested. It's like the Bible tells us to be sincere and without offense. The word sincere comes from the Latin word sinceris that means without wax. When the Greek empire fell, the Greeks were big into statues. 
The Romans, they weren't into statues. They just toppled them over, used them for target practice, thought this is fun. But after a few years, the Romans realized, man, if we had those statues back, look what they're worth on eBay. Look what they're going for. It's like, and so they started getting chunks of statues and sticking them together, melting some wax, putting them in, taking all the pieces, and they could make a statue that looked really good. But if you took that statue and you stuck it out in your yard, the sun would come up, the heat of the day, the wax would melt, the statue would crumble. And so when you go to the marketplace, certain statues had a sign on it that said, Sincerus without wax. It meant this statue, you can put it out in the sun and it's not going to fall apart. You'll see it's not held together with baling wire and straw. It's the real thing. And so for us, the sincerity of our lives, the reality of who we are, can only be tested when we're out in the sunlight, when the heat is on. And as the heat is on, you'll find out. What are you going to do? Are you going to fall apart? If you fall apart, you just proved you weren't what you pretended to be in the first place. But at the same time, going through those experiences and seeing the strengthening that God does, the healing that comes to those wounds, you'll find out that you're stronger in the process. I've gone through some really horrible, tough times in my life. Times when I just, for a long time, I could have been bitter against it and was. And felt like nobody needs to be treated like that. Nobody, why would God allow a kid to have to endure things like that? But I've lived long enough to discover that time after time, God has allowed me to be there with someone who's going through a difficult time or somebody who has gone through a difficult time, and I'm able to share with them that you can come through on the other side. God is with you. And so many times, as I've held someone while they're crying, while they're in misery, I've thought to myself, you know what? Just this one time makes it worth everything I've ever suffered in my life. I don't understand that. But wounds and suffering, they make us into who we are, who God wants us to be. It's why over in Colossians chapter 1, Paul talked about that we're actually filling up what's lacking in the suffering. Now, that's the scripture. If you call me up, I won't know what it means. But I do know this. It doesn't mean that we suffer and therefore help pay for our own sins. When Jesus said it is finished, it was finished. And my suffering has no uh, saving value to my sins. But at the same time, I know this, that when I suffer and when I experience pain, I connect with him in a way and he connects with me in a way that I can't completely describe. But I understand that when Jesus suffered, he knows what it feels like. He knows what the inside of a grave looks like. And as a result, there's a fellowship that comes from that, a connectedness that defines who I am. I, you know, Paul over in Philippians talked about all that he had before he came to the Lord. And he said over there in chapter 3, he said, you know, I, was, I had this great education from Gamaliel, the top rabbi of the day. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee. As far as the law was concerned, I was blameless. But he said, I counted all but loss compared to, I count it but dung, compared to knowing Christ, experiencing the fellowship, the, the power of his resurrection, and I'm going, yeah, no kidding, give all that up to get that kind of resurrection power, but he said, and the fellowship of his suffering. What? You mean being with him in the middle of suffering is worth, it makes everything else, the best things you ever had, like dung compared to that? Wow, imagine what the good stuff is. It's the worst part of being a Christian, you think. And yet he goes, no, the worst thing in Christianity is way better than the best thing I ever achieved apart from him.
because it's being there with him. Guys that go to war discover this. There's something that draws them together in a way that impacts them profoundly and causes them to be never the same. The, The bond of two guys who are out there battling the enemy together, it does something powerful. It forms lifelong friends. There's love that you didn't think was possible that happens in that kind of a situation. And so we'll see that in our lives as well. Well, some of you remember when you first got married, it was really a struggle. I know for Ann and I, we were really broke, and I was really sick, and it was just, it was tough. And yet we drove around, we went shopping almost every day, not to buy things, to try to find places where we could return our wedding gifts to get money for food. So we'd walk through the store, oh, there's that blender, we have one of those, run back out to the Pento and pull the blender out and come and exchange it and... And those were tough times. And we had to get creative and coupon use and everything else. But, you know, we don't look back on that as, oh, that was terrible. At the time, it didn't seem so great. But the truth is, looking back, we realized it was fun. We had to get creative. It was always an adventure. We never knew what was going to happen. And those are the times of life sometimes that draw you together in a profound way. Well, the same thing happens with the Lord, fellowshipping with him. The wounds, the injuries, the struggles, the problems, they draw us closer to him. We learn things that we couldn't learn any other way. I love that. It it was a poem that Barry McGuire turned into a song, and it says, I walked a mile with pleasure. We chatted all the way, leaving me none the wiser with what she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow, and never a word said she, but all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. He goes on to say, blessed are you when you trust what you just don't understand. Can I explain it? No. Is it something that we advertise out there? Come and become a Christian and suffer. No. But those of us who have gone through the crucible, and as we've seen what God does, we look back and go, yeah, I know this sounds trite, but the truth is, I would not be who I am today if I didn't bear these wounds and scars, if I hadn't gone through this pain. You know, it's It's real. Try it. Accept it. What what God's doing in your life, take it as a blessing, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how wounded you are. There's meaning in it. There's fulfillment in it. There's healing within wounds. Now, think about the disciples here. They're looking at Jesus' wounds, and they're seeing their future. Because, see, every one of them, with the possible exception of John, who was boiled in oil, but he didn't die from it, He died a natural death, we think, on Patmos. But all the other disciples were killed for their faith. So as they looked at the wounds of Jesus, they were seeing their future. They were saying, wow, that's me. Thomas, doubting Thomas. After this, he went and became a missionary and went to India, was sharing Jesus there, started the church there in India that traces to this day there are Christians in India that wouldn't have been Christians if Thomas hadn't have gone to India. But... There were pagan priests there who didn't like him, and they took a spear, and they rammed him through in his side and killed him. Now, there's Thomas, his hand in Jesus' side, and that's going to be your side somehow. The Bible says, Isaiah 53, by his stripes you were healed. But it also says he took our iniquity on us, and so when you look at the wounds of Jesus, you're seeing something that you did to him. But at the same time, 
You're also seeing something that he did for you. His wounds heal you even though you were the one who inflicted the wounds. I love Mel Gibson being interviewed about the Passion of the Christ before it came out. And he made the statement, they said, how come like, you know, even Alfred Hitchcock would always put himself into his movies. Don't you have a little part? He said, yeah, I do. And they said, oh, what, you know, what part do you play? And he said, when you see the nails being hammered into Jesus' hands, he said, that's my hands that are nailing them. Because he said, I'm the one that put them on the cross. And so, as they look at the wounds, they go, I did this, but it's for me. And there's healing in it. It all, in the light of eternity, is all going to make sense. Now, another thing that we notice about Thomas here is that after his doubting and witnessing these wounds, he falls down on his face and he worshiped. And he said, verse 28, my Lord and my God. And that's the other thing about wounds they will, more than anything else, bring us to a place of worship of God. Draw us into that closeness, that intimacy, whereby we don't have anything else and we have to reach out to him. The worship that flows. By the way, Jesus didn't rebuke him for worshiping him. It shows clearly that Jesus is God. Because all the angels, whenever somebody would try to bow down to worship an angel, they would always go, don't, 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 I'm not God. But Jesus received this worship. And there is a worship that comes forth from pain like no other worship that we'll ever experience. A richness, a depth. I think of often of Job. The most amazing thing in the story of Job is that Job lost everything. He, he lost his kids, lost his houses, his business, his crops, everything. Everything but his wife. And that's another story. But... Having lost all of that, it says he fell down on his face before God. And I could see that. He brought him to his knees. And I could see Job just going, why, why, why would you do this? But it says he fell down on his face and he worshiped. He worshiped. And what did he say? That those, those words that are one of my favorite worship songs are based on it. He said, naked came I into the world, naked will I return. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Reduced to worship. Feeling, seen, not understanding and going, my Lord and my God. One of the reasons why that scripture is so special to me was a, a few months ago. Got a call from the police department that there's a young guy who had just fallen over and had a heart attack in the store in his early 30s. And he had, he had a wife and daughter, and they were at the hospital, and they were asking for a chaplain. And so I headed down, and as I drove, I got more information. It was a family that I knew who they were. They went to Calvary Costa Mesa. They, were, they had just become missionaries at Calvary the week before. They just got the notice that they're going to go away as missionaries. They were so excited. But he, at that point in the store, just going to... Get a few, pick up a few things for a vacation they were taking, and he fell over and died. And as I walked into the emergency room, he, Gary was laying there, and his wife standing next to him, obviously distraught. And, and God just put on my heart that passage from Job. And I, and I thought, that's not something you share with somebody at a time like this. I went over, she saw me and recognized me. I hugged her, prayed with her a little bit, and then I said, you know, there's a passage in Job where Job lost everything. 
And he said, I came into the world naked. I'll return naked. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And she said, I can't believe you said that. I'm like, oh, shoot. And she, she goes, no. Today, before Gary went to the store, we were talking about that song. And she said, we were singing it together. And when it came to that part that said, you give and take away, you give and take away. She said, Gary said, I don't like that. She said, what do you mean? He said, I don't, God's given so much. Here we have each other, our daughter. We've got our ministry now. We're going to the mission field. And I'm afraid of God taking it away. And she said, no, Gary, you can't look at it like that. It, it comes from God. We need to let it go. We need to release it to him. And as they talked, and then he came to the point where he said, yeah, you're right. I'll sing that. And they sang that song together. And it was the last song they would sing. He went to the store and ended up in heaven. And as I stood there with her in the emergency room, I felt like we were on holy ground. I felt like this is amazing. And as we joined together and sang that song, I can't remember a worship service that was like that. And, you know, it's not, it doesn't make it, boy, David's great. What are you saying? That it's good that somebody died so you can have fun singing a song? No. There's a reality when you're right there in the presence of God, when you're seeing what God can do in the middle of your struggles, and if you can bring yourself to bow down and worship him, if you can bring yourself to say, God, you give, you take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. I know you're good. I know that you can work through this. I know this fits with your plan. That's what real worship is. I don't think if we ever suffered, we'd ever really be able to worship. Worship flows forth from wounds. Finally, the end of the chapter, Jesus said, Thomas, verse 29, because you have seen me, you've believed. Good. But blessed, or oh, how happy are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We often have a misunderstanding about faith. And we believe that if we can see some miracle, it's going to increase our faith. That somehow for Thomas, when he touched the wounds, now his faith grew. That's not true at all. The, more, the less evidence you have, the more faith is required. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's going, it's cool that you believe when you see. But he said, it's even better when you can bring yourself to the point where it doesn't make sense and you can't see it. And you go, I'm going to believe you anyway. So many times I talk to people who are like, they've been a Christian for a while and they think something's wrong because they go, man, back when I accepted the Lord, it was so exciting. I felt these just God working in my life and he'd speak to me really clearly and I'd see miracles. I'd go to Walmart, just pray, parking space right next to handicapped and it's like, oh man, but lately something's wrong because I'm not feeling him anymore. I'm not enjoying that excitement of that relationship with God and we go, oh no, have I left my first love? No, you've graduated. You've got to the point where, as Thomas did, hey, it's great seeing Jesus, oh, wonderful. But pretty soon he's going to have to go and face a sword that takes his life. It's not going to be warm and fuzzy anymore. And yet a greater blessing in that because that's what faith is. That's saying, I don't see it, I don't feel it, I don't understand it, but I'm going to submit myself anyway because I want to live a life of faith. The more evidence that you have, the less faith is required.
But as Jesus is telling the disciples, I'm not going to just stay here with you. I'll be with you always. The Holy Spirit, I breathe. He's in you. You've got him. But it's not going to be the same as having me here where I can put my arms around you and tell you you're okay. But he says, I'm telling you there are bigger blessings that'll come into your life when you understand this lesson of faith. When you don't see and yet you believe. And for a lot of you, you think you're going through trials and you can't hear God's voice and you can't sense his presence and you don't realize the deal is he took the training wheels off. It's time for you to just start pumping and believe that that's going to happen and once in a while you'll run into something and crash and nobody's going to be there to kiss your owie. You're going to have to put yourself back on your bike and start pumping. But your father is there. Jesus is with you. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. But he would say to us, grow up and you'll see there are even bigger blessings to walking with me, to believing and understanding that though I don't get it, I'm going to commit myself to him. I'm going to walk with him. I'm going to trust him. Oh, man, the blessings that come from living a life of faith. Faith, the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. My evidence, what do I see? Nothing. But I have my faith, and that's going to see me through even if I don't see anything, even if life doesn't make sense. Jesus preparing the disciples for the time in which we live where we don't see his wounds. We see evidences of it, but at the same time, boy, it would sure be nice to run into him in an upper room. But he's there. And he says there are more blessings for us because we haven't seen, and yet we believe. And that's a good place to be. Let's pray. Lord, how we need your peace. We live in a world that's full of turmoil. We need a peace that passes understanding. So help us to focus on you being in our midst. Help us to place you in the middle of our problems. God, if there are people today with questions, help them to understand that you love that. You appreciate people who really want something that's real, Not just shut up and trust, but hey, go ahead, ask the questions, it's okay. And Lord, there are those today who right now are dealing with hurts and wounds in their lives that are indescribable. Things going on now that they know they're going to carry with them, ramifications will be there for the rest of their lives. Some of them looking back on pain from the past and seeing these wounds and and trying to make sense of them. Why? God, I pray that you'll help them to understand that those wounds are just identification marks. Those scars, those are the evidence of what you've done and the way in which we can fellowship with others in a painful world. So Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to rely on you completely, to see your hand at work in our lives. And Lord, when we feel you the least, may we worship you the most. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.